Hello and welcome to the Rolling Mall, the Lesser Tigers fans podcast. Recording a little bit early this week, although you probably won't notice. It'll still probably go out late like uh, it always does. But it's me, Mike. I'm over there as Elliot. We're going to be talking about the loss to Saracens, which actually is one of the hardest games to review I can remember. There's so much sort of on both columns of good and bad about it. So we'll, that'd be an interesting one to get stuck into. Lots of news to talk about. And of course, the big preview against Harlequins when all of the big guns are coming back. Elliot, mate, how are you doing? You went on a trip to the Stonex, which um, I think we've agreed before is a bit out the way from any good pubs, but uh, has quite a decent bar system there. Yeah, I mean, um, I quite like Saris as an away day, purely because I love London away days, whether it's with football or rugby, um, so it's always good fun. Um, and we found a cracking pub in Highgate called The Huntsman, um, which if you're ever in the uh, in the area or want some, somewhere to go and have a drink, would recommend that. Um, it's clearly good food because um, when we left to head up to Saris, it was actually Ramo with um, people on the tables uh, for their lunches. So the food must be good. So, no, I, I always like, um, obviously, around Mill Hill East where Saris is based, there is literally nothing, um, which is a bit of a tough one. But it does mean you can have to, you have to be a bit creative with it. And I enjoy being creative. So there's plenty of good pubs in London. you just got to go out and find them. And um, to be fair, work your way up the Northern Line is a good one. There's a couple of nice mm. ones around Tufnell Park as well. So uh, I always enjoy it. So it's good fun. Well, there's two things there. Firstly, get creative. I think the last time I went to Saracens, that basically meant going to an offie and sort of like sneaking swigs of special brew on the walk to the game. Wow. Um, the other thing to note is that you're a big fan of that sort of like very trendy northern part of the northern line anyway, because am I right in saying that you spent your birthday in Camden? I did. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. See, that's far too trendy for the likes of you, if I'm being honest. Well, uh, fish out of water, I think, is the term you're, uh, you're 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 searching for. Good weekend, apart from that, though. Uh, it was okay. I mean, both my um, football team and rugby team lost, which is a bit of a downer. But overall, the the, um, the actual day out uh, yesterday in London was very good fun, and it was um, irrespective of the game, it was uh, a quality day out, um, which is what you can look ask for. And it's Sunday, as we're recording this, it's been nice and chilled out. I mean, Jen went for a very nice. Um, brunch and um, ends up in a charity shop and bought far too many secondhand books as I always do when I'm in a secondhand bookshop. Guilty. Oh, I'm such a bookworm. Pound each, mate. They're a pound each. <laughs> I'll read anything for a quid. Mate, honestly, God, you what? This is very off, ta- off topic, but I never buy a new book anymore because I got fed up of going into um, something like Waterstones yeah. and you'd see a nice book there for like eight, nine quid. And then going into charity shop next door and find the exact same book for one pound or one pound fifty so i never now buy new books in, unless um, you get hooked on a series that's the problem and actually my favorite genre of book is historical fiction so i quite like bernard cornwell con Eagledon. and then i'll find that i've read one and i kind of say oh right it's part two of a trilogy and then the third one comes out and you end up paying for what anyway that's far too intellectual for this kind of podcast anyway my weekend was spent looking after the kids because uh, my wife was at work uh yesterday and then she was off with her mates today on a well-deserved uh, sunday lunch which apparently was a bit disappointing so i won't shout out the pub but basically uh what that meant was because we had the residual part of the storm it was a bit crap here it's a bit underwhelming it was just like a bit breezy but on the saturday it was it was still raining so i went along with the rest of canesham to the soft play centre 
Um, fucking hell, that was stressful. Yeah, you've got two kids. You don't know where one is half the time. You just hope Fred's all right. Keep an eye on the little one. And all the while, it, it stinks of sweat and skid marks. So, you know, not the best way to spend a Saturday. Not uh, Yeah, you're not selling those dreams. Mm, no, absolutely not. Right, a bit of news to get through before we get started. I want to talk to you about the Leicester Tigers women's podcast, which is going to be run by Jess Bunyard, uh, who's been on our podcast plenty of times. You all know her, and Jacob Basford, who's uh, a very loyal listener, massive Tigers fan. They're going to be running what is called the LTW podcast, um, or LTW fancast, beg your pardon. But they are all prepping for, I believe, the first uh, premiership game uh, which I think is the 19th of November. So I think the week building up to that is when you can expect to get an episode. We've been given a bit of a treat in that we've got a bit of a sneak peek because they've managed to have a chat with Leicester Tigers captain, certainly up to now, uh, Natasha Jones. So I'm just going to play you a quick clip from that uh, so you've got a taste of what to look forward to. Going into this PWR league, it is a step up. We're not expecting massive results from the get-go. It's going to be a slow build and a slow growth from the team, and it, it has to be to be sustainable. What's the what's the preparation been like? Um, well, so pre-season, I can sort of like savage, uh, quite brutal. Um, we really put for our paces with Lewis Knight, our SNC, um, just all the fitness testing just a lot of running and um, just getting our fitness up before we even focus on looking at those real fine motor skills. Um, so yeah, it was really pretty tough. Uh, there'll probably some tears here and there, but um, just being able to do that together as a squad and all know that we're working for the same goal. It's just really brought us together even tighter. Um, moving on from that, we've then looked with bringing in a new, completely new coaching setup and new players um just looking to gel together and just look at things from different aspects and try and really like come up with our own brand of rugby obviously still developing from stuff that we learned from the first year and incorporating the new players and the old players um yeah just really focusing on that attention to detail and with each game that we've played so far in the cup we're building each time we're learning from our mistakes and just progressing all the time. So I'm, re- I'm really excited for this season. But yeah, uh, pre-season was really hard. <laughs> That's uh, Natasha Jones there speaking very candidly to uh, Jess Bunyard and Jacob Basswood on the LTW fancast. Uh, tears during pre-season. I mean, I get watery eyes just thinking about what the guys go through pre-season. So fuck me, I must be a different kettle of fish when you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, I'm in a similar sort of boat to you. It's, I always admire every, every like pre-season for every sports team because it is just a real tough um, experience. But rewarding when you get like we've all been there when we've played for our respective teams. It's tough, but it is rewarding when you get there. But yeah, you look at some of the stuff these professionals go through, and it's like, oh my god! Like mere mortals, like me and you, will just sit there and go, I know what I calf, can calf strain. Sorry, yeah, that's... yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just. Don't have me again. Oh, I've splintered my pancreas. Um, all sorts of creativity will come out there. But that, yeah, that's the LTW fancast. That's going to be available to download a separate podcast uh, for the week building up to the 19th of November, which is going to be uh, their first top league game. So um, well done, Jess. Well done, Jacob. Well done to everyone at the club. Thank you so much to everyone at the club for uh, making interviews like that happen. Uh, really, really important uh, for the growth of the podcast. 
Uh, moving back onto this one, quick bit to talk about regarding one of our sponsors, Parish Brewery. There's a, a, going to be a new competition uh, which forms part of their sponsorship, so just keep an eye out for the plug which you get before the news on that one. Uh, and also, me to talk about Premiership Fantasy League. I don't want to talk about it because I'm doing so badly. I even forgot to update my team this week, which didn't really help. Um, but the leader is still Sims 22 and I was dismayed to learn from one of our listeners, Alex Huntley, who got in touch with me to say that um, it's his mate and he's an extra fan. So fuck me, guys. We've got to chase him down. We can't have an extra Chiefs fan. It does explain why he's done so well, because extra have been fantastic. And clearly, the extra fans knew something we didn't. Yeah, absolutely. We 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 have debated kicking him out of the league, but we're not as we are petty, but we're not quite that petty. So uh, um, we're gonna unless he wins, and then we like we might have to go to drastic measures. But uh, <laughs> but no, he's it, doing well I so am far. Petty, I am. Well, petty. yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I think like we're hoping for just like Exeter, he's doing well so far. But we were we're hoping for recalibration once the internationals come back. So that is the uh, that is the fit, but. I'm having a stinker. You're having a stinker. We don't really want to talk about Premiership fantasy rugby at the moment. No, absolutely not. I will very quickly talk about the World Cup fantasy rugby because if you remember, there was a magnum of wine to be won, uh, courtesy of Charnwood Vintners. Um, they also are providing the same price as the Premiership fantasy rugby, by the way. Um, the winner of the World Cup fantasy league was Shane Speedy, as we mentioned last week. Shane, get in touch, mate. You haven't got in touch. That magnum of wine is sitting there with your name on, and we're going to have to put a time limit on it. If we don't hear from you by the time we record the next podcast, it's going to go down to the second place candidate. Who says that you don't win anything with a runners-up medal? So if you are the winner or know the winner, uh, please do get in touch. Um, not that we don't want to give the prize to second place, but it'd be nice to give it to the winner. That does, does suggest Shane does, doesn't really listen every now and again. He just wanted to come in and win the thing, just just as an ego. Fair, fair play. Yeah, fair, fair play. Fair play. Like it. Shane, if you're listening, get in touch with us and you can use the following details as everyone can. Our email address is therollymallatoutlet.com. Our Twitter handle is at rollingmallpod. And you can find our Facebook group as well under the name The Rolling Mall. Before we crack on, a quick thank you to our sponsors, St. Martin's Coffee Rushes, who are helping us put this all together. St. Martin's Coffee Roasters are a small team of coffee professionals, proudly born and bred in Leicester. Family owned and operated, they've been dedicated to perfecting the art of coffee roasting for the past 10 years, solely focused on sourcing, roasting and supplying some of the world's best specialty coffee to their customers across Leicestershire and the UK. They're passionate Tigers fans and St. Martin's have long-standing connections with the club and are proud to help caffeinate the players and staff in their efforts on and off the pitch. In an effort to help the fans wake up on match days, St. Martin's Coffee Roasters are offering 20% off all coffee when listeners use the code ROLLINGBALL, that's all one word, on their website. So visit stmartinscoffee.co.uk to stock up on locally roasted specialty coffee and use the code ROLLINGBALL, all one word, to save 20% off your next purchase. The news section is brought to you by Parish Brewery. Parish Brewery award-winning ales are brewed in a 400-year-old convertible stable block in Borough on the Hill in rural East Leicestershire. And it's from here that the chaps that run the place, good blokes, dodgy haircuts, a couple of them, that's fine, like to follow the traditional ways of brewing using only the finest malted barley, hops, yeast and water to brew their cask-conditioned beer. 
The brewery began life in 1983 as one of the first microbreweries in the area and are forerunners to many others that have opened since. In addition to the many beer festival awards, the brewery is the proud recipient of a Guinness Book of World Records Award in 1994 for having brewed the world's strongest beer at the time, Baz's Super Brew at 23%. Baz being the previous owner of the brewery. Uh, Baz's Bonds Blower, by the way, is still available in bottle form. And if you want to finish a night on a high uh, or, or a crushed low, I fully recommend it. It's actually very tasty. Um, anyway, please follow the Parish Brewing Company on Facebook or Parish Brewery on Instagram and take a picture of your Parish beer next to a pump clip on the bar with you in the picture and include the name of the pub and post it on the Facebook page or the Instagram page and you'll be automatically entered into a draw at the end of the month to win a 10-litre bag-in-the-box of the cask beer you are photographed with. And the two beers you're going to come across in local pubs are Parish Special Bitter and Proper Charlie. Now, Proper Charlie is very, very popular. Special Bitter is my personal favourite, but both both excellent. You'll find it in various local pubs around Leicestershire, and in particular in Everard's pubs at the moment, where they happen to be guesting. Good luck, everybody, and enjoy. Right, time for the beep, 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 beep news section. And, ah, no Tiger Watch. For the first time in what feels like fucking months. So I'm actually quite grateful about that, to be honest. My voice can't handle it. I get you. <laughs> Tiger watch. Oh, I did it again. Uh, plenty of news, though, to talk about. Let's talk about the worst kept secret, secret in club rugby, which is the return of Anthony Watson. The, the, the length of the deal is somewhat sort of, I don't know, mysterious. It said, you know, effectively, I think I... I heard beyond this, the end of this season. So you think it's about an 18-month deal? That's how I read it. Two years. It. Yeah, two, 18 months, two years. It's two seasons. Two seasons, exactly. Takes them up to the Lions tour, basically, which makes complete sense, particularly for these international players. They like to, once they get to a certain age, they like to block it for World Cups and, uh, and Lions tours and sort of see where they go from there. So basically, we've got him now for another season and a half. I think he returns at the start of December. Just how... Good is that to to see him come back in Tigers colours. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is. Anthony Watson is one of those where I can understand why some people may go. Is it or worry? Go for, is it value for money considering his injury record? And I get that, but I think the sprinkle of stardust that Watson brings. I think in years gone by, I think we had too many players who were who had injury problems and they were the significant members of the squad. I think this time around, I think having one maybe two players with stardust who are um who do have some injury concerns i think is the maximum you're allowed and i think given the x factor that watson brings it is worth the investment to do so because we all know if you look at that try away at ospreys Mm. it's out of nothing and it is it's a bit of magic out of nothing in a tight game that separated the two teams and got us to win on the day and i think for those moments over the course of the season if you get you know there's let's look at it this way there's 18 league games there's at least four Champions Cup games and then plus whatever you get after that. So there's at least a minimum of 22 games that he's going to be available for. If you can get sort of 12 to 15 games out of him, I think especially in those sort of big games, you know, Champions Cup, knockouts, you know, those sort of games, I think it's worth it on the um, on the, on the the roster overall. He's a top-level player, isn't he? And I think he yes. does things that not many other players can do. There are times when his feet are moving faster than it's like he's playing at a level above like the very yes. few times when i've been playing at an okay level i'm casting my mind back ages 
ago and I've gone back and played with my mates, you know, kind of like at third 15 level or something like that, the game's you, is noticeably slower for you when you play it. And it almost feels like that when you watch Anthony Watson. He's, you know, he, he's playing the game at a different speed. He's seeing things differently. And I think if you are going to have those X-factor kind of, you know, slightly injury-prone players, you know, the wing for us is, is a good spot to have it because you've got Josh Bassett, one of the most durable, solid performers who I'm sure come on to. Uh, I thought had a had a very decent game against Saracens, one of the guys that did. And I think that... It, He's in a position where there's great cover if he's not fit, quality cover. But at the same time, um, if he is fit, then he just adds so much. And I do still think that we've probably got him on a a pretty favourable deal for ourselves um, because I think he is still very keen to play for England. I think he's really keen to go on another Lions tour as well. That seems pretty obvious. And I think he really enjoyed it here as well. I think it was such a change around from the environment at Bath you know, no nonsense, get down to work. I think that is something that has really appealed to him. Yeah, I do. I think he's very much, he's openly said in his interviews that he's enjoyed his time at Leicester and being around the club and, um, and you know, the high standards that, be, that Leicester expect. I think he enjoys that, you know, that elite atmosphere. We spoke about other players who have left us and it's different elsewhere. I think coming into a club like Leicester where it is, it's very straightforward it's straight lace you're in you work hard it's about being better he, he those sort of players bbc sorry just quickly jump you know he labeled it for the bbc it's an international environment at club level yeah and i think that is the um and again we've we, we'll, we'll talk about it obviously further on in the podcast but you know when you look at the standard of players that are going to come back into the to the club and the the, the levels that they bring you know it's put it this way we were caught on Sunday night. Training levels for Monday tomorrow at Oval Park will go up several gears with the returnees coming back. So those those are the sort of things that players like. I do think like you, I think the contract he signed is still probably below market rate. I don't I think there's probably better offers on the table or there there is if all things being equal, um, there is a better he's probably worth more than what we're paying him. Um so I think that shows you that A, the environment we've got, and secondly, We've done well to get the deal over the line. I think that's the key point here is that credit to the club. We've got the deal done. Um, and it's nice that we're able to actually finally have Watson announced as being back uh, back with us. And it'd be I just, it'd be just looking forward to having him back on the pitch. He's always got... The thing I've got with Watson is that the top level players is one of those. I've got the aura when they walk on the pitch of, I'm good. And I, like Pollard's got it. Montoya's got it. Watson's got it. That awe of how they walk and how they carry themselves. It, it's they're, they're, they're the big it game players. Players around them as well. It, it's like I don't want to say the word arrogance because it's got such negative connotations. But I think the best players are almost arrogant when they come onto the pitch. They know that they are better than their opposite They've number, got it. and they yeah. they look forward to taking their opposite number on and beating them. By the way, sorry if you hear bangs in the background. I'm not being shot at, although as a shit podcaster that wouldn't be unexpected it is fireworks night tonight so just want to put your mind at ease or disappoint you depending on your view of me um back three of uh Hassel Collins Watson and Stewart which actually started for England in the Six Nations uh I think a couple of uh that ill-fated game against Scotland or no was it Wales I think it was Wales which we won I mean yeah yeah I mean look that that back three is fire and um I know we've not shown too many shots just yet in the attacking, but again, we'll get onto it when we do the po- series podcast. I think there are fundamental reasons why we are struggling in the in that era. 
in that area. So I do think once the, as I say, I know it's, I don't want to repeat myself for later on, but I do think once as the season progresses and the squad gets fully formed and people are coming back, we will see a lot more um, attacking shapes and attacking opportunities for our outside backs. And I mean, those, but that back three is, as I say, pure fire. And I'm very excited to see it in action. They don't need, obviously, Stewart is sort of the counterbalance to Hassel Collins and Watson, who are different players, but, you know, are definitely more attacking players in what they offer. And Stewart is that sort of, that solid rock in the middle, though I do think that he is underrated in attack. And I hope that we'll try and sort of bring him into the line more uh, as we start to play. But the good thing is with Hassel Collins and Watson is that, yes, you want to be giving them overlaps and space, but they don't need it. We saw Hassel Collins beat Maitland in, in a post box at the weekend in one of his few sort of attacking touches. So for me, I think that's something to, to look forward to. Um, one in, one Oh, actually, just on the back of that, um, shout outside of Witty, who I think's had an excellent week in terms of getting some questions and answer. He asked Dan McKellar about, oh, you know, Mike Brown, he, his contract's up in December. Is, is he off then? Does that mean he's gone? And he said, look, the two are completely different. So it, it, Mike Brown's future's still up in the air. I, I know with Watson back, you've got more quality 15 cover. But I think how Brownie's played, uh, you know, you want to keep him around. Yeah, I, uh, for me, um, Brownie's performances over recent weeks have been um, really good. Ever since he's joined the club, they've been really good. And I think he brings that sort of elite level mentality with him in terms of that competitive, that drive. He's looked after his body, as we've always said about our, our golden oldies. The fact that they keep themselves in good shape and are able to play at their ages shows that they're all, like ultra-professional and they had a great standards to have in training and around the club. My gut feel is that with the, um, the shaky form of Atkinson and Shilcock's um, emergence as a very, very good 10, I do think the club will be trying to do a, a move around in terms of they will be, I think, trying to keep Brown on board. I think the, the process will be, look, Shilcock may have jumped ahead of Atkinson in the pecking order for 10, in terms of being the cover for Pollard, which means that Shilcock, I think, was brought in for being Freddie Stewart's uh, backup at 15. I think that's now going to change. They'll put Shilcock in as backup to Pollard at 10, which means there is an opportunity for a, or there's a requirement for a backup to Freddie. So in that regard, it would make sense if they can make the numbers work. That's the key thing here. They've got to get the numbers working. But if, if everyone can agree a deal and there's a deal to be done, I think there is a... Um, all parties will want to keep a deal for Brown to the end of the season. The only thing against us in this is that, uh, obviously, with the shortened season uh, and less international, well, barely any international win, I think there's one game where we won't, we'll be missing guys for the Six Nations, is that minutes may become an issue for him in terms of actually getting on the field. But, you know, Pollard is not without his injuries. Watson is not without his injuries. You get a couple of knocks there, and all of a sudden you're starting to go into the depth chart. So, as as long as we can make the numbers work, and hopefully we can, um, I think it would be really, really good to keep him on uh, for the rest of the season. I think he's been absolutely fantastic. Um, anyway, as I did say, one in, one out. Uh, Mike Williams is leaving. We always use on a short term deal uh, just for the. Uh, we thought the Premiership Cup, but then I think he he obviously played. He's played a couple of Premiership games as well. Um, to be fair to Mike Williams, I think he did what was asked of him. I, I thought he worked really hard. I think it was one of my criticisms of him when he left. I, I, I queried his work rate, but I think he worked really hard. And, you know, he was he was solid. There probably questions about whether or not you could have put in, you know, one of the younger second rows that we've got, like Lewis Chesham. 
instead of Mike Williams. You know, did he did he block a couple of appearances for a young guy there? But you know, we don't see what's going on in training. Maybe McKellar's of the view that look, this guy, Chesham, he he could be wicked, but at the moment he's not ready. And I think it would do his confidence in the long term better to have to learn from uh, experienced players mm-hmm. and, and and start to get proper games next year. Yeah, I get that. I mean. Um, for me, Williams had a good 15, 20 minutes off the bench against Bristol. I thought he had a, a positive impact in that period. He was rewarded with the start against Sale, um, which is fair enough. The problem is he was pretty ineffective against Sale and he didn't have him in his best game. So I understand, and he got dropped obviously for Bath. So I understand why there is um, a bit of frustration around that. But in the circumstances, I, I, I can see the logic and the thinking behind why the decision was made. Um, he was also there to cover Wells's injury, so we didn't know how long Wells' yeah. recovery was going to be after shoulder surgery. So, look, it, like you said, it's he, he's done what he needed to do. He's allowed to run the line-out moves in in training over pre-season because at least we had a full quota of second rows. He's he, it was a body to have on the field during the Premiership Cup, and he's covered us in at the start of the season. It is what it is. Um, he's done what the job he was asked to do. Um, I'm, I I think it would be unfair to, for me to bag for Guy or, or say ill of him because I think he's oh, done a good job and he, uh, he deserves it. doesn't deserve to be bagged at all. I think he's he's been completely solid since he's been there and uh, obviously not sure what the future holds for him. Best of luck, Mikey. I hope uh, you yep. get a contract somewhere and uh, can throw your shoulder around there because you know uh, I still wince at the thought of a vintage Mike Williams tackle, which was obviously what made us fall in love with him uh, during his first couple of seasons uh, at the club. Um Shall we move on to Adam Whitty's other excellent bit of work, I thought, which was on the... Scoop. The Scoop. scoop. The Scoop, exactly. Um, I don't want to give him the nickname The Scoop. He'll get really big-headed about it. But um, straight after we recorded our pod, as is tradition, some new new sort of information came to light. You and I did some digging. We found out this stuff about there being a a clause in McKellar's contract was likely bollocks. I think we had that confirmed by three separate sources, two of which were... reputable journos one of which actually to be fair was Adam himself um so we kind of knew that that sort of side of things was slipping away notwithstanding that we didn't think it made much of a difference anyway because obviously if rugby australia wants to try and buy him out of his contract they'll they'll try and do it regardless but Adam it's a high fee it's, it's a, a high it's fee a, regardless it's a big big slice of cake if they want to take him away but then adam asked you know the golden question to mckella and he said look all this stuff going around what are you doing? And McKellar says, I'm 100% staying, which is fantastic. Then a few people, I think, got the willies because he said, you know, if anything changes, I'll let you know. And I, I think when you see that written, you go say, oh, is that him just kind of like giving himself some cover? When you listen to the interview, it's almost like he's annoyed that he's been asked the question. And that's why he's saying that. Basically, don't ask that again. Not because I think he's annoyed at Adam, but I think he's annoyed at the circumstances and, and the the media furor that has that has allowed that question to be asked in the first place. Do you know what I mean? Yes, we we it comes back to the point what we made last week is that McKellar wouldn't have wanted this to come about in the way that it's come about. So it, it like it's, I can imagine it must have been frustrating for him on Sunday night. He's sat there in um Shez McKellar and someone sends him this going, look what the Aussie media is saying. I can just imagine there was a few choice words in the McKellar household um off the back of it. Partic- so, particularly with what he said after the Bath game as well, which was, you know, a very polite way of saying that he's thoroughly fucked off with how they treated Rennie and, and himself um, around the whole Jones fiasco. So I think that, like I said, uh, 
as we sort of hypothesized, he wouldn't be interested in going there unless it was going to be fundamental change. And given how I say Jones has fallen on his sword, you know, <laughs> I don't know sort of how much he's fallen on his sword or how much he thought I, I should probably just walk away from this. But the senior guys at the top don't seem to have any inkling to to look look within at themselves. I can understand completely why he'd be very, very hesitant about even talking to them at this stage. I, I just I think it's good news for Leicester in terms of the noise is not, but literally as soon as on Thursday it came out from um from Adam um that McKellar had said that, the noise is gone. You know, the noise is completely gone from that subject. Air, balloon has been popped. You know, it's now you everyone is not talking about that anymore. It, it just, I think it just it calms everyone down. It gives everyone reassurance, both fans, players, and all the rest of it. So I just think I think it's a really. I don't think he could have been. I don't think he could have said anything more stronger than what he actually did in in the instance of it. Having listened to the interview, it was pretty. Um, you know, it's pretty straightforward. It's straight lace, tough, straight talking Aussie. It just means we can all focus on the actual rugby, which is the main thing now. In terms, of there's no distractions. Players are coming back. We can just rip in into the rugby, and actually all that external stuff passes us by. And I think that's the main thing. I think really for everyone is that it's it, it was a good thing for him to do, and he just nipped it in the bud early doors. Yeah, fantastic. Obviously, <laughs> that still doesn't mean to say that you know, kind of nothing will happen because you never know what could happen if rugby Australia. Aussie media could put three million down. They are yeah, the Aussie. Yeah. Aussie rugby could put three million down on the table and say we really want him. We're desperate to have him. Here's three million quid. Dan, tell us who you want to go, and we'll get rid of them. You know, you call the shots now. You know, of of the whole shebang, and you know that that could change. But as of now, as of the situation, as say, I think as it stands, that there's no inkling for him to go. So, I think it's as good as we can hope for at the moment. Uh, I know that hasn't been the best start to the to the league. We'll obviously come on to that, but I I think that when you've got a new coach coming in. You've got to give him time. You've got to give him time with the first choice players uh, before we start uh, making any judgments. And I, I've been really impressed by everything that he's done, sort of pre-season and off the field and everything like that. And I think that um, I still uh, harbour a huge amount of optimism for uh, Leicester t- uh, Tigers and Dan McKellar. Now that was positive. One bit of slightly negative news coming out tonight is that it's been reported that Jasper Visa is in advanced negotiations with Stade Francais. Uh, for a move at the end of the season. Uh, we are also reported to be on advanced negotiations with him. So I think it's to be expected, isn't it? You know, he's he's you know, he came to us as, you know, not on anybody's radar. And I say we've made him, he's made himself here as well, let's let's be fair. But between Jasper and Leicester Tigers, um uh, one of the world's premier number eights has been established. He of course will be courted by clubs in France. Um I don't think this news is of any surprise. I don't think it tells if it tells us if he's going to stay or not, but it does tell us that obviously we would we would like to keep him, but only for the the fair and right price. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like you said, this risk round of negotiations, it was never going to be a solo effort. Uh, whether it was with France or a club back in South Africa, it was always going to be um, this way around. And to be fair to Jasper, he'd be doing the right. I think by having a look around to see what options are. He's, he's 28. So this is probably his big contract. This is probably his main money-making contract. This will take him up to sort of 31, 32. So he's doing his due diligence. And he wants to see what's out there. And I don't blame him for doing that. And he would be, um, he's doing the right thing by by doing so. I think the key thing for us is obviously you've got to make the numbers work 
both for Jasper, but also for us as a club. And Jasper is probably for us, if you were to list either best player or most important player to Leicester Tigers, he's probably in the top three. And some might say he's the most important. I mean, we can have that debate, I think, separate to this point. But he's very, very important to us. And he's integral in terms of how we want to play the game and how he plays the game. He suits our game plan. So, And we've got three seasons of him absolutely murdering our position numbers. So we know how good he is and we know how important he is to us. So that is the, the, the value of him. The other side of the coin is obviously he is now in the South African squad. Vermeulen is going to is probably going to have less involvement with South Africa moving forward over the next uh, four-year cycle. There's a few up-and-coming um, number eights back in South Africa, but at this point in time, you've got to imagine that Jasper is in a one position to capitalise and make the number eight shirt his own, leading into the next World Cup when he'll be 32. So because of that, you have got to be mindful of the fact that with a 10-team league, English players are now your most valuable commodity because of how the league's going to be structured international clashes are very much going to be minimal to none. You know, moving forward, and we know we've had some this year. Very, very good point. We've had some this year because of the World Cup, but next season, there is going to be very little clashes for England players. So they could become your A1 commodity. The Rugby Championship traditionally goes through August, September and October, and a little bit of November with the Autumn International. So well, I, I think usually there's like a two-week gap between the Rugby Championship and the November yeah. Internationals. And I think we've taken different views at different times about whether it's worth bringing guys in for a week or two before they go straight back off on tour again. Absolutely. Now, if if you look at who's going to be caught up in that um, that sort of triangle of Rugby Championships, I'm missing the pre-season, um, going into the Autumn Internationals. You've got Polly, Jasper and Montoya. They are probably our three best and most important players. Now, if you were to wipe out, let's say you go through until the 1st of December, where everyone comes back, looking at traditional timers of how the season goes. Now, I'll caveat this with that may all change. The, the fixture calendar for next year and future years rugby championships haven't come out, so it could all change. But if you look at the traditional calendar outlooks, we would effectively start right off September, October, November and December. Oh, sorry, start September, October, November and miss the preseason as well, of our three probably most important players. That's a big chunk of time considering after, you know, after Christmas and the new year, there is very little rugby in terms of club stuff because of the the gaps going to be taken out for for zero international clashes. The club has actually got to work out, whilst Jasper is very, very valuable to us in terms of his on-the-field impact, that's worthless really if you're not going to get him on the field that often. And this is where, whilst I would like to keep Jasper and I would like to put, make sure that we put a fair deal down on the table for him, we do have to remember that given that, we could potentially be without our three main players. Now, last year, we were without after those three big guns for quite a lot of season, but there was enough time in the, the season to catch back up. And years gone by, because of if it was a 22 or 24 game season, a lot of rugby stacked up in the second half of the season. So the, the, the South African boys have a real big impact in for you. If that's not going to be the case moving forward, you do have to make that judgment call about someone like Jasper, who is the start, possible starter, now probable starter for South Africa. He may not be round four. So we need to caveat that stuff. And it might well be that we go, you know, look, Jasper, you're a legend of the club. But if you've got a deal that's worth X in France, we're not going to go there with you. And it's actually better for the club overall to maybe go into South Africa to pick a promising youngster 
who's 21, 22. Cheaper, better availability. <laughs> you, and I, you and I have <laughs> spotted another one off the, uh, the uh, fucking production line in South Africa, haven't we? I think he made yeah. his debut in the URC, and uh, I think he finished with something like two tries and assist, something like six defenders beaten, at least 20. Uh, what's his name again? Cameron Wokenham. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you make such a good point with that. I think the way that you end up having to structure it is by saying, you know, how many games are going to be around for? What's his value per game? And, you know, try and sort of create, you know, an offer based on that, not a paper game sort of basis, but basically you figure out what his value is per season uh, because of that. The the key thing to remember, of course, is that he'll be equally missed in France. Uh, if not more so, actually, because their season starts earlier. Although, of course, they do have more games um, after Christmas. So, you know, Stade Francais will be doing the same thing. And ultimately, the mechanics still come, you know, come down to the same thing. And it's that we've got to put out what we think is our best fair offer for him. And if Stade Francais are offering 200, 100k more, then, you know, we've got to say, well, look, that for us is somewhere we can't go for you. And, it, it, that's just the way the rugby economics work at the moment. So, you, you know, we can't just throw money at, at these players, even if the salary cap's growing up. We've got to be careful about where we allocate um, that salary cap increase. And the last point I would make is that, I'm not, this isn't a slight against Jasper, this is a general point, is what you want is, I love Jasper and I want him to stay at the club and I think he's a great guy and he's been brilliant for us and I absolutely love the bloke. What you don't want to do is have players stay in the club for money reasons. You want them staying with the club because they love playing for Leicester, they want to play for Leicester and actually the money side of things is almost irrelevant. You know, you don't want to be, I think Steve summed up when he was doing his recruitment a couple of years ago, he said, I want players who want to play for Leicester and we'll put an offer out that's fair, reasonable and is in line with what we think is the best offer for a player. If they don't want to sign it, that's fine. But we're not going to chase them and offer more money to just to, to be that to be the factor that, that, that they stay at the club. We obviously want to reward players monetary because that's the key thing. And that's that's all fair and reasonable. They need to be paid what, all accordingly. But if that's the sole differential between us and another club, that we don't yeah. want to be we don't want to be that sort of signing to be the, the reason why we've got players there. Because I think in years gone by, that was part of the reason why we got ourselves in such a mess is that we chase players and we tried to get them to stay and we offered loads of money. But actually, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't the best thing for the club. And now, as much as it would be painful if it did mean Jasper left, and I would be gutted because he is so integral to us and he's had some great moments with, with us in the shirt. If it's just the way it goes, that's just the way it goes. And I would wish him well and would be cheering on him in France unless he played for, against us. But yeah. it's just how the way the world works at the moment. I think you're exactly right. I think that, you know, kind of if you come back and an agent is sort of haggling to just try and get you to match an offer, then you say, you have to say, well, no, this is this is where we're at. This is what we can do. But, you know, for me, um, I, I do get the impression Jasper, all things being equal, would like to stay. This is where he's yeah. made his name. I, you know, he, he is proper embodying the Leicester Tigers ethos. Probably not the same at Stade. He's probably sort of against the grain. I know they've moved on a little bit, particularly under Gustard as being slightly more hard-nosed. But historically, you know, they've always been very, very flash. Uh, and it, it's not kind of the same history as you have here. And, you know, it could well be that if those offers are close, uh, sort of relatively close for a professional sportsman, you know, like within 50 grand or whatever it is, it, it, it could be that Jasper is like, you know, actually, I'd rather stay, which is fantastic. But um, particularly as we've got guys like Hatherall and Rogerson now who who can do fantastic jobs at number eight uh, as well in his absence. 
But as you say, if if we're getting blown out of the water, there's not a lot we can do about it. Right, let's get on to reviewing the game. Saracens 32, Leicester Tigers 17 at the Stonex. Never really a happy hunting ground for us, apart from one win under the Matt O'Connor era of all eras. I think I remember that. I think uh, Manu scored as well, which was always a, a place. We were all like, oh my God, he's back. He's, he's going to be permanently fit now. Uh, and obviously that never really materialised. But it's this for me, Elliot, was one of the hardest games to gauge. And actually, before we get into the performance, we need to talk about the selection because obviously that has caused a huge amount of discussion online. <laughs> According to Twitter, or Twitter's been saying it's, it's really lame, but it has been you know awash with discussions about this. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a discussion point. It is a very, very important discussion point as well because we made it clear we're giving all our guys returning from the World Cup, from the top four, that's all our South African, Argentinian and English players, the week off. So they get to recuperate, go see their family, South Africa. Well, Jasper and Polly are on their, you know, their South Africa wide tour of, with the trophy at the moment, which is what they deserve, obviously. Um, Julian, obviously, you assume has probably popped by back to Argentina to see his family. Uh, and the English boys have all got to go and spend some time. These guys have been away for their families for, you know, four months or so and in a hyper intense environment. So mentally as well as physically, uh, a week off is very important. Saracens, on the other hand, I'm not saying this is right or wrong decided to bring literally all their big guns back from England. And we hypothesised maybe one or two might come back, but they went the whole hog and they were all obviously keen to play, as I'm sure all our boys were, would have been if they were asked. Difference was Saracens, us, their players. It meant that we had a very, very imbalanced starting lineup between the two. We had one which still looked very much a borderline second-string side for us. I don't like using that term, as you know. And one that looked like absolute gun 15 for Saracens. Yeah, I mean, on the whole, I'm okay with what Tigers have done. Um, it jars when you look at the, the, the sides and you look at the sides that other teams have put out with their England boys back. So I can understand it, it does jar. I do think on the balance of probabilities, looking at the situation overall, it's the best thing to have done or the right thing to have done, let's say, for Tigers to have done what they've done. It's also, like you said, the mental fatigue is probably the bigger thing of just the emotional stuff, just... Just go away. Just forget about like we've all been there with work where you have, you know, why'd you go have a week in Mallorca in the sunshine? Because work's, you know, you, you're fed up with work, you do a long shift for, for a couple of months, you week away in the sunshine, just doing nothing, reading your books by the side of the pool. It's a great getaway. Mentally, you discharge from work for a week and it's great. That's effectively what Tigers have done with their boys. Have a week off, go and do what you want to do, do what you want. But have a week off, but come back in on Monday to see. Get, get, fully yourself, get yourself excited about club rugby again as well. I, I, I think that I've seen a few players. I think Lenny has done it a couple of times where they've come back off like a high of a World Cup and just not been the same player. You can feel that it feels like a, a come down for them. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, and, and also if you think yeah. about it, it's easier now because it's a block because you don't. They've actually got you said you, you're that nail on the head. They've had that week now to get over what's happened over the World Cup, whether it's disappointment, elation, whatever it is, they've had the week to get it out of the system. Like you said, you're now excited to come back because once they come in on Monday tomorrow, they're all, they're all over club rugby. They're not thinking about anything else. It's, and then you've got from then solidly blo a block. You've already had the week off. They've had that baked in. They've had that organised. You're now in the block of playing for Leicester, focusing on Leicester and being in that environment. So I think 
actually, it's easier to have it now rather than a few weeks' time go to Lenny. Lenny, you need a week off because then he's disrupted his rhythm. So his yeah. rhythm's out of kilter. And, and that of the team, you know, it means that hopefully, you, obviously there will be tweaks and rotations here and there, horses, of course, depending who we're playing perhaps, but it means that we can hopefully put out a really consistent starting 15 now. Um, for the rest of the season, which I think is something to be really excited about. I think there are a few questions. Adam Whitty makes a really good point. My God, this is like the Adam Whitty fan cast now. I'm going to tell he him. He owes us a pint. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll tell him to listen to it. You're the Radio Leicester Leicester Tigers podcast. Very, very good. <laughs> they get players every week. We get them sort of on occasion. Just on that point, we have asked for this week. So uh, if there's a surprise guest that I haven't done in the introduction, it'll be a surprise to us too, basically. So that'll be very, uh, very nice. But he made a really good point to say, that look, the position is that the, the England players, I believe, have to have a week off somewhere. But the problem by not mandating it for a certain week is that you then do get these mismatches and is that fair for fans? And is that helpful to the league product? I think that's a really, really interesting question and I can completely understand why a lot of people say no on both counts. I think that people who said, well, you know, the, the decision to rest players was a failure um, based on the fact we lost, I think that's far too short-termist. I think that the answer is only going to be found out at the end of the season, really, to see whether or not it was the right call. I think that, you know, even if we go with a gun 15, guys just coming back for the World Cup, there's no guarantee that we walk away with anything against Saracens, notwithstanding that we're going to say there were missed opportunities, etc. So I don't think that we necessarily have this sort of listed down as a target game, which sounds brutal because we obviously want to win every game. But I think that there are some really interesting answers, but we're not going to know the outcome of it afterwards. I'll be interested to see what Saracens do next week because they're playing Newcastle away. It may just be that they said, look, I think we could do a job against Newcastle without the big boys. You get your week off next week. I suspect that there was, worth remembering that yesterday was, or Saturday, kind of when you're listening to it, was the um, fireworks display at Saracens. It's a home game against Leicester, so it's a good marketable fixture. It's a nice one to say to your fans, get your ticket sales up. England boys are back. You get them in. You've got the firework display afterwards. You make a bit of, they, they tried to make a bit of a day of it. And I understand the reasons why. It's a home fixture. They, I think they've got two away games now, one at um, Falcons and the next one away at Quinns. So it's an easy one to, to bring them back in, get a bit of PR, bit of, get a win on under your belts, you know, pack the crowd a little bit. If it means you sell an extra thousand tickets because you get to see the big stars. There's a lot of reasons why they've done it from their side of things. I don't think they'll then play away at Newcastle. I think they'll send up a team for the Gloucester side, the side that they played against Gloucester, I think will travel up to, to Newcastle and that will be the week off there. So look, that's how they've done it. And it, for us, it would be interesting to see if we'd got a home fixture, what we would have done. Well, that was what I was about to say, because I think the comfortable thing for us to say is sit here very sort of pompous and say, well, you know, this is player welfare first. Um, it's an excellent decision, you know, looking after the interests of players and it's an excellent long-term decision. I wonder if we'd have made the same choice if A, if we'd have had a home fixture or B, if we'd have had a markedly more winnable away fixture, if that makes sense. You know, Gloucester or, or Newcastle away, um, no disrespect to them, are easier um, games to target than perhaps Saracens away where we've had a terrible record even with our best uh, 15s put out. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Well, show me what supports because, I mean, there's two ways of looking at this, I think, which is it, they are so polar opposite. I think it's a really interesting edge review, and neither view really is right or wrong. I'm sure the truth lies somewhere in between. But on one side, when I saw the two 
15s put out. And I looked back at what happened last year. Saracens had their gun 15 and we did send, it was more of a first choice team, but there was some rotation that we had Gopeth and Thok in the singer in the center, didn't we? And we just got absolutely tore to ribbon. So we had 50 put on us. And I think a lot of people, when they saw the starting lineups, thought, oh God, it's going to be some, something similar. And then Joe Hayes pulls out, you know, late on as well. Will Hurd steps in. And, it, you know, in light of that, you would say kind of like the score line is pretty respectable. We stayed in the game. There were lots of opportunities. There were flashes of attack in the first 10 of the last 15 where I thought um, we looked quite dangerous and we looked the more dangerous side. But then the flip side of that is Saracens were far superior, deserved their win. Um, quick shout out because we, we always like to get our praise to the opposition out the way early. Whatever we were doubting about Atoje or Earl or the England boys being, you know, perhaps a bit jaded, complete bullshit. They were fantastic. Itoje was phenomenal. That's one of the most dominant displays I've seen him put in in any shirt for a long time. He was absolutely sensational, closely followed by uh, Ben Earl and on a rewatch daily. Farrell had some excellent moments as well. Obviously, a few disappointing ones, which we like to gloat over. Jamie George, superb. So they thoroughly deserved it. And the difference really was that they had another gear they could go to, that they went to at a, a few times through the game. Not regularly, but we just couldn't live with them. And and But it's an incredibly frustrating game because we had opportunities. We had however many attacking lineouts, so the lineout just completely disintegrated. So there is another sort of side of things to say, look, lads, this is something that you train for. That's not good enough. Yeah, completely. And I agree with all the... Um... A lot of what you've just said there, and I echo all your comments about Saris as well. I thought, you know, their top tier players showed why they're top tier players. Um, and it was, you know, they showed what they were about. And it, like you said there was a noticeable difference between the teams and it was their internationals. And, you know, that's why they picked them. That, that, that's what you get from having decent clubbies against full-blown internationals and not just full-blown internationals, quality internationals as well. So there is a noticeable difference. I said on... Uh, Friday afternoon, Friday night, when the teams were announced, I said the whole. If we have a mismatch in selections like that, you to bridge the gap or to get something from it, you even need to play, if not your perfect game, or as close to perfect as you can get for the full eighty minutes in terms of bridging the gap and and effectively taking away that advantage in terms of your team selections because you get little victories and you get momentum, you stop their good stuff. So they get frustrated. You're putting them under pressure. You get some errors. You start throwing a few more shots of your own. And before you know it, that gap has been closed to, so, to such a small amount. It's not it's negligible. And by that point, you're in the game. You're on equals. And that's how you get a result under those circumstances. Unfortunately, Tigers, they didn't play poorly. They just didn't play well enough to get that win across the 18 minutes. They did it, in like you said, the first 10, first 15, last 10, last 15. So, But not consistently enough over the 18 minutes to get it. They then obviously then exemplified all of that by obviously have like the individual errors. There's some poor passes, some knock-ons, passes going into touch and all the rest of it. The line out like passes said, behind players as well that stops the momentum. Yes. That, that's a common theme of this season that I don't like. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you then you go into the line out issues. So even when you did have a platform, you either gave the ball away or that you know, don't I think there was only probably of ten or twelve throws. I think only one or two that were clean Leicester balls. The backs every time they did get it from a line out, they're under pressure. It's not a one ball for them to work with. It's not clean stuff. So they're under pressure. So all of that meant is that you didn't have a, a foothold in the game and you had very little control. And, you know, in a in a game like that, you need 
foothold in it just to give yourself a shot a platform something to work with and actually they did a lot of good stuff in amongst it you know they did have some nice moments they, they did create opportunities and they did have those times where they're asking questions of Saris, but they just didn't do it often enough or frequently enough and they just didn't back up you've got to back up stuff you do a good moment you back up with another one then another one then another one and you get some points but they just didn't they do a good thing then they throw the line out and then it, it's stuff like that where you just you didn't have a feel in the game and mm. they will be frustrated because it's not a tonkin and it's not you don't sit there like 50 points to 17 or 50 points to whatever and you're sitting there going like bloody hell lads we were we, we were shagged they weren't they you come away almost frustrated it's almost easier if you take fi- take a 50 pointer because you walk away saying we were outclassed and outclassed by a long way it's almost a little bit more frustrating because you sit there and go on another day we get something from that and it was almost quite telling i thought that once the internationals came off for saris the, the the gap was no longer there and actually tiger started winning collisions they started getting into the game more they started throwing some shapes they started getting the upper hand in stuff you know it would it, it's it's a question that will never be answered. It, it's a it's a redundant point, but it would have been fascinating to see if a let's say this this fixture was a week earlier. You know, we were playing Bath on Saturday, and we played Saris last week, and it was an equal side, just to see how we got on. Or the game as it is, but Saris decided to do like Leicester and said, "Right, England boys, you have your week off. We'll see you next week." And again, it would have been an equal lineup. Just to, it would be fascinating to have seen because mm-hmm. they had Tigers had enough good moments to sit there and go, "Actually, you know what." If things are, if the England boys weren't there and it was just the last week's side from Saris playing against our side today, how we'd got on. And I suspect it would have been a very, very close game and we may have got on to the, the good side of it. But it's a redundant point. But so back to the central point is it wasn't bad. It's just not quite good enough to get the win. Yeah, I agree. And I think the first, what became clear to me, I was really pleased in the start of the positive we've moaned between us about how narrow our attack is. You know, everyone within almost like a 20-metre sort of channel. So there's no width to it. And I don't know if the idea was to try and punch a hole and then spread wide. But for this, we we actually had width from the start. And for the first 10, we sort of, uh, we asked questions uh, in the wider channels. Hassel Collins, as I mentioned earlier, I think he beat Maitland in sort of a two-metre space, which was incredible. We weren't getting a lot of change because, as you say, you had Itoje coming up and making dominant collisions. Like Almost every collision he seemed to make was dominant or slowing the ball down um, on that beautiful grey area that you know frustrates us as Leicester fans, but as a as Saracens fan, is superb. And if you're a neutral, you say, that's fantastic play, to be completely honest. So yeah. uh, we saw that, but the issue was is that we, for us to sort of... It seems to be a trigger for us to be able to play like that. We need to have the ball in Saracen's third. And we seem to put a lot of stock into our kick chase game and to kick to recover. And I don't think we got close once. Uh, Part of that was Saracen's, you know, very clever blocking lines, which are technically legal. And this is no slight on them at all, but I think it's probably a part of the game you might want to change. You should probably say players can run directly back, but you can't run towards the ball carrier. I actually also think it creates more danger because, you know, you've got players becoming unsighted and bumping into each other, etc. That's where you probably create accidents. But the kick chase was a little bit lethargic. Some of the kicks were a fraction too long. That was Whiteley and Shilcock, obviously, um, who, you know, I thought had very, very good games, you know, aside from that. But when you're not getting the ball in the right areas, 
the stats may say, oh, you've had an entry into their 22, but if it's to go and have a line out, which you then fuck up, it, it never even feels like an opportunity, if that makes sense. Uh, and it wasn't until, like you say, kind of like the last 15 minutes again that all of a sudden we started to retain the ball and actually run through some phases. So, yeah, it was it was really, really frustrating. Um, we'll start on, the, I suppose, the big negative then, uh, which was the line out, which we must emphasise has been almost flawless um, until now, I think in a couple of like misses against Bath, but that was in basically a monsoon. So I'm not kind of really counting those two. Like it'd be weird if you didn't miss a couple. But and to be fair, like say, like to just go, you're right. And also Bath last week they competed with us, but at the same time we still won the majority of our ball. If not, I think it was like you said of 10, 12 lineups last week. We won all bar two in a absolute hooli monsoon stuff, and Bath competing with us. So. Bath are entitled, like Saris did, to compete with us. And actually, last week, we dealt well with competition in the air. Yeah, and, and we've been very lucky on this podcast to speak to some of the line-out gurus. We've spoken to Charlie Clare, Nick Dolly, Cam Henderson. And we know there are so many facets to a line-out. I actually think in many ways it's more complicated than a scrum. But I thought Flatman, who irritated me a few times on his comms in the game, made a really good point to say, if you look at Saracens, they were kind of dummying one section of the line-out and then going to another and creating a lot of confusion. We were sometimes dummying for the timing. So you might have a guy at the front who dummies, but then it would be immediately substituted by another guy who would jump up at the front. And it, it became quite clear early on that Saracens would say, right, well, they're all rushing to the front, so it's going to go to the front. And we didn't seem to have a lot of deception there. Now, I don't know whether that was a strategy before, because I, I swear we've done more complicated line-out moves. Charlie is an excellent thrower, as we know. I don't think too many of the throws were massively under. I think a couple maybe were, but it, they were just, you know, into our line out basically. Uh, and I think you've got to ask questions of either what you decided pre-game or, or the inability to change it mid-game. I felt from my seat watching at it, and actually where the, um, the attacking lineups in the, the first half where we kept on gobbling it up were all on my side of where my seat was. If I was on the 22 and it was all in line with where I was. Effectively, this is easy to say in hindsight that when we got those attacking penalties, we should have took the three. But it's not in hindsight because Saris were into our line out from the start and on the halfway line. You know, they were very, from pretty much to get go, they were into us. Mm -hmm. So it's not with hindsight when I say, actually, look, look, lads, when you get a penalty that's kickable, take the three. Because it was obvious from the start what was going on. And at no point were we ever clean. What Saris almost seemed to do is, and this is where I was a little bit disappointed with us is that I don't think they actually read our calls. What they were doing is just going, Atojo is, is equal, they'd throw up at the front, and Leicester, for some reason, didn't go over them. They didn't go to, a, to, go to the back. They didn't go into the middle very, each very time. They kept on go- that I can't recall if we went to the back. We threw one over the top of the line out, yeah. which should have been given not straight because it was five yards <laughs> off the kilter. And thankfully for us, it was when Dan, I think it was Dan Kelly off the back got it on the full and takes it into midfield and subsequently loses it. So actually it was karma because it was never straight in the first instance. But we never, ever varied where we were throwing to it. Basically, I don't think Saris, as I say, they just put someone up at the front. And I bet they couldn't believe their luck for every time they'd throw someone up at the front and they'd get the ball back. I mean, it was astonishing in terms of considering how good those boys are and how clever, you know, they get their line-out guys, they're experts in terms of Hanro and Henderson from from a throwing perspective, from a for receiving perspective, and Charlie Clare and then Nick Dolly from a throwing perspective, these are guys who have played a lot of rugby and they've been around the block. I'm amazed that 
we never ever varied where we're referring to. It's the same call each time. And like it just became bizarre in a way. And it just it, it again, it meant it comes back to my point. We never had a foothold in the game because you work so hard. And this is where it'll be frustrated because they did have the operation of scrum. So we're getting scrum penalties, they're getting yeah, Shout there. out to Will Hurd we need to give there because Yes. Um I think I've previously thought of you know, Coley, Hayes, there's not much between them. There's a step down to Hurd, but I think we saw last year against Ospreys away, Will Hurd came on and stabilised the scrub when um, Hazy had had a torrid time against Nicky Smith. And I think we said at the time, every every prop has like a nemesis who they just can't figure out. So I think Nicky Smith may be Hazy's. But Hurd came on to stabilise that. And then um, against Saracens, I thought he had the edge on Mako. And I thought he had a really, really solid game. So I think shout out to Will Hurd coming in late notice and delivering a display like that and going for what, 71, 72 minutes? 76. He did a, an absolute wow. shift on him. So, and almost, I think I'll have to look at his stats or have a look at the game back. But I think he was defensively flawless and he puts in some big tackles. He gets around the park as well. So, loves yeah, a chop tackle good. as well, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he, he is. He is good in that department. So, we, this is where the team will be frustrated because they had to nudge in the scrum to get penalties and they were starting to win penalties in and around the midfield or in kickable positions. And given the, the lineup problems that were going on in the middle of the field, once the first one from an attacking perspective had gone awry, there really should have been a call to say, right, lads, I know it's 14-3. I, know, I think they've got themselves in a mindset of you can't beat Saris with penalties. You've got to do it with tries. And it's an understandable mindset. There should have been a call to say, right, lads, We'll just take the three, get on the board, consolidify 14-6. We know we're starting to get a bit of some penalties. Let's see if we can do the trick again. We'll work our way up. We'll see if we can do it again. You know, suddenly 14-6 becomes 14-9, 14-12. And then you're, you're in the game. You're just ticking away at it and you're ticking away. Like exactly like we did last week against Bath, where we kept on nudging it way through. That's where they probably should have should have gone about it. So it, it in, in the tapes, when they look back, there will be a few few frustrations about how they went about things because they actually did some good stuff but they just, they just couldn't consistently back it up to get themselves where they wanted to be I completely agree it it was really frustrating just on the scrum just one caveat I thought it's telling that once you got past the engage point there was only one side that was attacking the scrum and going forward and that was us I always think then if you've got kind of penalties going the other way on the engagement it's a bit of sharp practice from the other prop because he doesn't want to get into a, a strength contest or a technique contest. Uh, so I think there were a couple that went against us, which on the engagement, which I think is a bit of a lottery anyway. But like I say, once we started scrummaging, we definitely had a nudge on. So I thought that was really, really impressive, really, really positive. But yeah, I, I, I was quite surprised even without the lineup that we weren't taking the points because, I mean, the way Shilly's been kicking and the way he kicked all his goals um, against Saracens and obviously he did it in Bath in horrible conditions, um, he, he, He's got a heck of a boot on him. He hit one from just shy of halfway, didn't he? First up to put us into the lead. And, you know, that that could have been replicated. I think we added this up, didn't we? About nine more points. Uh, not guineas by any chance, but you'd expect him to at least get two out of the, the three. And, you know, kind of it, potentially it starts to weigh on Saracens where you're like, oh, these boys aren't going away. We've we've broken out and played some world-class rugby and scored two tries, but they're still only five points behind. And that is a big difference, and I, I do agree. I think, again, I say in hindsight, but it's perhaps something we should have done at the time, um, should have been taking the points. Defence, I thought, was quite interesting, because I thought there were times in the first half where we got caught too narrow. There was one horrific bit where Daly sort of walked through a gap, I think Hanro was in, and 
uh, I'm not going to blame Hustle Collins because there was literally no one sort of 20 metres on the inside, but we got caught uh, waiting now. I think Porter got caught potentially now, but the scramble was very, very good. I actually thought our defence against a very, very good Saracen side that, as we know, can play some sensational rugby. I thought our defence, by and large, um, stood up pretty well. Yeah, agreed. I didn't. There were some iffy moments, but you knew you were going to have that considering the quality of their backline. I would say, in fact, Sarri's played some lovely rugby at times. When they the ball out the back and a variant of options, they are they are very well drilled, and they were always asking questions in our uh, in attack and of our defence. So, look, I think overall, they will be happy, Leicester, with with how they went about it. They did. the The issue is, is that because of the increased physicality that Sarri's had, is it, it may come back to this point late, later on. Is that Saris were consistently winning the game line. And both in attack, when they were attacking, they were getting over the game line and that allowed them to, to, to attack. They had a real solid plot for them each time. And secondly, in defence, they were hitting the game line a lot harder than what we were and stopping our attacks there. So they were, I think overall, the defence would be happy. There were some iffy moments, but considering the circumstances, mm. they will be happy. It wasn't like last year. And I think you made this point as well. Last year, they were up through the middle. You know, Cochran, Siegel and Gopov weren't talking to each other. And there was so much disconnect. I think um, Stewart was on the wing, and it just it, it became a very it's just a horrific mess well, out there. And it was just time and time again, and it didn't happen this year. Well, they they did score sort of two tries from going through the middle, but both of them were were errors that I think we'll be a bit annoyed with. I think the first one was was Tommy, who I thought had a had a good game overall, but he misses a tackle on Daly, who was ultra physical. Actually, I've got to say, uh, he goes through. Tommy and it's only a very sort of quick bump but it means straight away that every man has got to step in and once we do that I think Kelly goes in and and Porter doesn't follow him and that's not really Porter's fault because he's got runners coming round in his channel so he's doing what I think most outside centres do which is you try not to ball watch because that's when you get caught out but it means that the gap's there and obviously that they eventually charge through and Christie scores. Then there's the the second try, I think they will be really annoyed about that because it's just a straight off, you know, kind of like off the top of the lineup. Tompkins, such a solid runner, makes some some decent yards, not a huge amount, but decent yards, breaks the gain line. But our forwards are far too slow to get back round to that guard position. I think we have Shilcock covering round and, and it's just, you know, Itoje basically just takes a short ball and walks through a gap in the guard position, which is about sort of four metres wide. And obviously it's a complete just, mismatch, isn't it's it? It's a huge mismatch as well when he meets Shilcock. Shilcock brings him down, but obviously momentum and the uh, Inspector Gadget arms of Maro mean that it's it's a very well taken try. But you know it shouldn't be that gap shouldn't be there in the first place. But because you're going backwards, our forwards have to work that much harder to be able to get back and around as opposed to the Saracens forwards who are just simply basically just running an arc to get into that um, uh, to attack that fringe. It was a really well taken try, but I think our pack will be like, well, why the fuck weren't we there? Perhaps there were some sharp practice players being held back. I don't know, but it was miles away from the ball, so it didn't get spotted. But, you know, it, it's something that they'll definitely look at. Yeah, agreed. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about the attack. Shilcock, I thought, had a, a very mixed first half. I think there were a few passes behind players. There was that pass into touch, but again, we weren't really going anywhere, so it felt like we were trying to fling the ball. Um, but let's let's sort of like try and start talking about a couple more positives. Let's talk about that last 15. Obviously, we get um, a good try from Tom Whiteley. Uh, it's good pressure from Sam Carter, who I actually thought in the first half in particular was was one of our better players. 
Uh, got a couple of really good old school turnovers by just sticking his boot in and hooking it back, which you don't see too often. And I thought that was really smart. Um, and he put some pressure on Farrell. He takes a weird option of a grubber kick on his, tw- you know, sort of 30 metres out. Whiteley sticks his boot out, bounces nicely, and, it, and he scores. So it was really good sort of defensive play. They'll say it's an unforced error, but it's it's a pressured error, really. But the attack that I thought brought the most excitement was obviously for Shilcox try, which, you know, gets a lot of views because of his thumping handoff on Owen Farrell, which was quite satisfying. But actually the build-up to that was finally something I think to get excited about because, like I said, we weren't winning the game line, but we were making it quite easy for Saracens. Again, it was the one-out runners, despite the fact we had width. You know, they, they can get targeted by one or two guys. It starts with Bassett taking a dart blind. Then there's an offload. Then there's a pass back inside. Then there's a pick and go, and then it's going. And all of a sudden, you've got these different angles, different points of attack, and it just creates so much uncertainty in the defence. That means that Shilcock, who is quicker than Farrell anyway, but is always running on the outside shoulder, and that's all it takes for a guy like Shilcock to go through. Um, I, I thought that was something that hopefully we can look to build on. Yeah, I agree. I I think for me, if you look at say a side like Northampton. They can be attacking without any sort of gain line success. They're quite happy to, they're, they're not reliant on gain line success. They, they've got, they're happy to play an attack irrespective of that. I think Leicester more than any other side are so, are really, really reliant on gain line success and collision dominance and being dominant up front in terms of A, get you the platform um, to play off. You know, you get over the gain line, get quick ball. Gives you a solid platform, get the ball away quickly. Secondly, in terms of bashing it up the middle, so therefore getting over the gain line, sucking defenders in from a narrow into an, from a um, from out wide into the narrow channels, leaving your players, your attacking players out wide, and it creates the space for them to exploit. So you can get the ball out quickly, get it through the hands, and your wide players are in space then to move up the field and go quickly. And thirdly, from an old almost old school Leicester perspective, in terms of putting the squeeze on. Just pressuring the opposition, squeezing them, allowing you to play the territory into the areas of the game you want to play with. What was quite noticeable is that for me, and it is a bit overly simplistic, and you are right in terms of the variation that we showed in that last 20 minutes, but a lot a lot of it comes from, they started, in the last 20 minutes, they started getting over the game line. You know, They started hitting the collisions and started winning the collisions because it's like Satoshi I mean, and, and all the rest sim- of it. It's simple and fair. Yeah, and That's I think... Correct. And this is it, I think, and I know Leicester are very reliant on it. They haven't learnt yet how to play attacking rugby without gain line success. What McKellar wants, McKellar ball is not that different from Borthwick ball or wig, what, what we was doing over the Wiggy. The whole point what McKellar wants you to do is the same fundamentals of the forwards win the collisions. But what he wants you to, to what, what he wants us to do is play earlier, you know, from further out. Instead of under Borthwick where we'd only play rugby in around the 22 of the opposition, McKellar is happy for us to play from the halfway line and get it through the hands. But, it has to be winning the collisions. And you st- in that last 15 minutes, you started winning the collisions from the forwards and also with Catter. And suddenly you get two or three big carries up the middle. You send- And Catter's a big guy and he gets his offloads away. Suddenly you then create a next, fa- next phase of play going quickly and defence get drawn in. And suddenly, bang, 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 the ball's out wide. We're moving up the field a lot quicker. And so I 100% accept that when people say, oh, we're not showing much in attack. I get it. But yes, there is, just to say, oh, we're not showing ambition. That is right, but it's not the whole answer. The, the answer is that if you look at the last 20 minutes against Bristol, actually, let's take it back. The Newcastle game is, I think, 
in the Premiership Cup, the perfect embodiment of what Dan McKellar wants from this Leicester side, in that they, the forwards dominated their opposite numbers. The pack of Leicesters overpowered the Newcastle pack. And it meant Joe Powell, who was non on day, got the ball away quickly. Charlie Atkinson played flat to the line. We attacked with ambition because we had a solid platform to work off. We were hitting the game lines. The defence was quite narrow. So we were able to get out wide. We moved up the field pretty quickly. And then the forwards would win penalties. And we could put the ball into the 22. And the attacking lineup worked well. Rolling ball hit over. And we scored a try. So now that, that to me is what McKellar, that 18 minutes is what McKellar wants Leicester to do. You look at the last 15 minutes against Bristol, the forwards start getting over the game line. And guess what? Leicester start moving up the field a little bit more. Against Sale and against Saris, for the most part, against they were playing against a pack that was stronger than them. And it meant Leicester couldn't get the collision dominance that they wanted and they couldn't get over the game line. And yes, you're right, there's not an ambition being shown, but because they're they're not hit, getting over the game line, they're not winning the collision dominance enough, that neuters Leicester too much more than any other side. And this is where it is quite simplistic, but you look at the guys who are about to come back into the side, well, you are going to, the pack suddenly becomes a lot stronger. And suddenly, you know, you look at the, the big carriers from the likes of Montoya, Visa, Chesson, Martin. You know, these are big boys. You start getting them over the game line a little bit more, then you start getting a, a better platform for our backs to be working with. And I think at that point, you will see, you know, if Casa starts, maybe whatever. But you, I think you'll start seeing better work from our backs because they've got a better platform to, to work with. So I completely agree in terms of, you know, say, having that go forward to start with and how much easier it makes it because the difference between having a defence on the heels and a defence on their toes is absolutely enormous from my very limited experience at having to play 10. It, you're either looking at a defence on the heels, you're looking at how you can manipulate it, you're looking to see where, you know, kind of like they're weak, where the space is and where you can exploit it. A defence that's on its toes, you're almost like, I just need to make sure that we protect the ball and don't get turned over here because the pressure's on you straight away. You're you're trying to protect the ball rather than create something with it, if that makes sense. What I would say is that, and this goes back to your point about you know attacking without collision dominance. There are other ways to get collision dominance or break the game line by simply running one of our blokes into two of theirs and hoping he's got the leg drive to go forward. But, and, and, you know, those, those were things that we had seen in preseason, which were, again, were tip on passes, forwards coming round the edge, you know, round the corner, pick and goes, you know, just something that is, is going to catch the defence by surprise and with a little bit of deception. We've not really seen that. And we did start to see that in the last 15 minutes, uh, or so. Uh, but again, it's helped by the fact that even when we did play wide, we were still winning, um, the gay line in that situation. So that's interesting. Let's talk about some individual players that I thought were quite positive. And you just mentioned one there, Catter off the bench. Oh my thighs! That boy <laughs> had a heck of a debut. I mean, it was it it wasn't completely perfect. He actually should have passed it. I think for the last play of the game when he got turned over by L, I think we had an overlap. But but by that point, you didn't really blame him for wanting to have a go at everyone because he was hitting lines. He was looking for offloads. He was just really aggressive and a completely different sort of line of attack when we um when we had the ball out in those wider channels. Um, super impressive stuff from him. Uh, we'll get it onto it in the Queen's game whether or not we think he should start, but he, he certainly gave us something, didn't he? He reminded, to be fair, in the flesh, he is huge. I mean, he looks big on the TV, right? In the flesh, when he was defending on our, just in front of me, he is a big unit, right? And then that, that, that I think is one thing to be said. So you almost got the doubt in the mind of, you know, you almost have the aura thing. And this is where it comes back to like when Namani was here. 
you almost make we almost have have them done in the head because you go look at Namani, he's massive. Look at Namani, he's going to get you. And you've almost got them done in the in the mentally before they even got anywhere near it. So you've you've got that. He's got the fear factor. And it reminds me of having Namani back. And we've I think since Namani's left, we've not had that from our backs. We've got some real talented backs, and they are physical, but not in that sheer Pacific Island fashion. That phys- that physicality that Pacific Islanders bring, or, or, and it is unique. Esserhausen, to be fair, sort of or South African, but you know, yeah, yeah. boy, yeah, and a handful and. He reminds me of what Namani used to bring, where it was sometimes it's not subtle, but it's really effective and you get over and he just it's power and it's raw power. And raw power is exciting because it can combine it with pace, you know, it and hands and a bit of talent. Suddenly you've got a bit of excitement and you, you're throwing yourself around a little bit more. And so I thought from that aspect, it added, it went back to a little bit of what we saw under Borfoot, where we could just, where we had Namani just breaking lines. It, it is exciting. It's interesting he came on for Porter, who I thought had a relatively anonymous game. Say our centres, I'm a huge fan of our centres, as you know. Dan Kelly, I've got tipped as being our young player of the season. I still think he can pull it back. Guy Porter, we all know my thoughts on Guy Porter. He's a phenomenal uh, all-round outside centre. But he was was very quiet. I think he, he did have one very good strip in the first half and then he had a really good run made about 20 meters when we attacked wider channels early on in the second half and you thought well hang on you know here we go but they are different and I thought Kelly actually had I thought a significantly less impressive game than Porter he was he made a couple of quite costly mistakes his hands don't seem to be you know where they've been but yeah he's usually so reliable in contact Kelly is and you know I'm sure he'll turn it around because he's a fantastic player and really really hungry um professional as well but I think it also goes to show that Kelly still is that second distributor for us. He still has that pass in his locker that Porter doesn't. And Catter coming on gives you that runner. I think that they they tried to say that you know Kelly had moved to 13, Catter at 12. I think they were defending that way. I don't think they were attacking that way. I think it was, you know, uh, you still had Kelly sort of in the boot or at first receiver. You had Catter basically the one cutting the angles that you would expect 13 to hit. Um, but I thought he offered um, a lot. Two guys off the bench in the forwards, I thought, were really impressive. Um, I thought Rogerson came on for Crackers, who hasn't been as influential as we expected him to be, given how he was last season. He was so aggressive, so dominant. I thought he was quite well handled, but not helped by how we play. With, you know, He's just a one-out runner. He, he can be targeted, but Rogerson has that footwork. thought he was poor against Bristol, but I think his last couple of appearances off the bench, he's been super impressive. Uh, and Harry Wells. Um, can we on? Uh, he was a, one of the chief reasons we started to get go forward. He was getting hit, but then sort of riding out the contacts and making yards afterwards. And I thought those guys gave us a heck of a lot off the bench. Yeah, absolutely. I thought they were very, very impressive. I like to we mentioned already Mike Brown. I thought had a really solid game and Great. diffused a lot of bombs and a lot of pressure that Saracens were throwing at us. And I thought he was at his kicking game himself. Actually, was very, very good and just. Again, calmed a lot of situations down. Um, I'd like to give a shout out to Charlie Atkinson actually, because considering the, um, the he is under a bit of Agreed. pressure. Shilcock Shilcock has has come in and nabbed his shirt, so he's going to be under pressure with that. We know he didn't have a great game against Bristol, and we know his confidence is probably a little bit shot at the moment. And we know there are issues around his kicking off the tee to come on the field. And it's not a guess, it's not a gimme. Put it this way, it's a, it's, it's a it's off the wrong side. It. It's off the wrong side for him as well. He should get it, 
but it's not a gimme, that kick. And to get it, it, I thought was a real nice confidence booster for him. And I think just, it's just a small win, but a small win to hold on to for him. And actually, just to show that there is, he's, he is a good player and it's a nice reminder of him, for him, that he's a good player. So I, in a small moment, I think that's a, a nice little thing, win for him. And I'd like to give him a shout out for it. Last point for me before we move on to three-word reviews. Got to quickly mention the officiating. I uh, thought Maxwell Keys was a little bit up and down. I thought um, there were a couple of decisions that I thought were just fairly bizarre. There was one point where Mike Brown was held in a tackle by Itoje and Brown's knees hit the ground. And Maxwell Keys shouts release. And Itoje just sort of like carries on hanging on to him. And Brown's talking to Maxwell Keys that he's just not letting go. So in the end, Mike Brown gets back off to his feet, which in, its, in itself is illegal, actually. Um, because he's not released the ball before getting back onto his feet. And the ball sort of gets scrambled about. Really bizarre. But then again, I thought he let us get away with uh, pushing the offside line, shall we say, uh, quite regularly. So I thought overall he he was pretty fair. Uh, The big call, of course, was Billy Vodopola's try, in inverted commas, uh, given as held up um, by Maxwell Keys, I think at the time, or at least I haven't seen the ball on the ground. I need clear evidence that there is a try. And I know the TMOs are under pressure to make quick decisions. And I, I think this is part of it. And if you have a quick glance from a distance at the screen which shows the ball, you say, oh, yeah, that's on the line uh, or over the line. That looks down. That's fine. But if you look very closely and if you fiddle with the contrast, you can see there is clearly a hand under it. Now, that's not to say that if you had some sort of sensor between the, the ball and the ground, it wouldn't tell you whether or not a try has been scored. And, you know, it may well have touched ground, but given the question that Maxwell Keys asked, given the fact, the video footage, there is no way you could give that uh, competently as a try. So, it, again, that's another level of frustration with, really with us. I know you hate the TMO at the best of times, but for me, it, it makes me realise that we were probably a functioning line-out and a competent TMO away from, I'm not saying winning the game, but I think at least getting something from it. Yeah, I think ultimately... I come back to the fact that we've had VAR controversy this weekend. And then I can't say anything about the TMO because where the TV or the big screen was in the ground, it's on the opposite side of the ground in both ways. So I didn't have a good view in it. But the fact that, as you've just said, you've got a commentator. The referee said he's not got grounding. The commentator can't see a grounding. Yet the TMO can mysteriously find a grounding. It, it, it doesn't inspire confidence in the system. Let's put it that way. So you know my thoughts on the TMO. It it doesn't. It's not an endorse another endorsement of it. And yet again, it, it's we're going through all this rigmarole, and we're still not getting. If we're still not getting the right calls, right? You know, what's the what's the point? Right, mate. Let's do some three word reviews. You do Twitter or X as it's now known. I'll do Facebook. What have you got? Uh, first one for me from Duncan Keane, who put better than expected. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think look at the the, the two sides like Friday at twelve o'clock. You sometimes feared the worst and thought it was going to be on for a tough afternoon. Yes, we didn't um, We didn't win and it was um, a, a pretty solid victory for Saris. I thought our boys, actually, to their credit, never let their heads go down. They stuck in the fight for 80 minutes and they were competitive and they weren't bullied up front. They just didn't get the edge up front. So look, credit to the boys for for putting in a shift and, and all of us. And like you say, the difference was a line out, a dodgy TMO and the internationals. You know, those are three things which actually were, were, um, were, small, were small things that had a big, big impact. Yeah, um, I'm going to go uh, with a comment from Russ Abbott, who sort of, I think, hits one of the nails very squarely on the head, who 
says red zone inefficient. And that's been a bit of a story for us uh, for a while now. I think even last season it was as well. Getting opportunities, it's also been an issue with England. So hopefully our England boys don't carry uh, that bad habit back as well. It, you know, those opportunities to enter the scoring zone, uh, I thought our mall at times looked pretty good. Uh, there was a very, very dodgy turnover from Atojo where he clearly changes his bind. That aside, I thought the mall was looking good. So I can understand to a degree why we went to the line out. But there's no point in doing that if you're not going to win it. And uh, yeah, we were pretty horribly inefficient, at least for 65 minutes uh, against Harrison's. Yeah, definitely. Last one for me is from Simon um, at SRS underscore 787 on uh, Twitter. He just put Kata shining light. Yeah, as we've mentioned, nice to have someone on debut come off the bench on on his uh, first game for the club and tear it up and have an impact. Only 20 minutes for him, but I think we've all seen something there that gets us a bit excited for... uh, for more to come from him. So yeah, definitely um, definitely a highlight from the afternoon. Yeah, Sally Cole said something uh, similar to that. She said, Cat, a big impact. So I think it's quite clear he's made a, a big impression straight away. Michael Harris uh, says, overmatched but proud. Uh, and I think that, particularly with some of the stuff we did in the second half, I think you know, we were overmatched on paper, but uh, stuck in it. So I think that is the more positive view that I'm choosing to take from this game. Right, on to the Nails 15. And, uh, well, we were dealing with number eights and a heck of a quartet that we had in front of us for you to vote on. Uh, Again, the criteria is something along the lines of who would you least like running at you slash who would you want beside you in a bar fight? The options were Martin Corrie, Henry Tuolangi, Jasper Visa, and Dino. Uh, I mean, all of them legends of the club and fucking are bastards in their own way. But for me, there was only one clear winner. I went with Henry. I think you went. Uh, indeed, I did. You went also, Mr. Tuolagi. Um, yeah, and he was the he was the people's choice. He was the winner. Forty-eight uh, percent of the votes, uh, Henry. So that completes the um, back. Certainly makes a pretty tasty back row in terms of Moody back and uh, Henry. I mean, that's a pretty fearsome back row. Uh, Jono and. Um, Oh Christ! Who won this? This this who got in with uh, John? We need to count this up. Um, my mind. Lewis, du- Lewis Deacon. So we had yeah. a Deacon in. So we've got uh, Jono and Deacon, and it was um, Genji, uh, Cockers, and Whitey in the front row. So spiky. I mean, you'd, you'd again if you're on a team social and it cut, kicked off. You'd want those eight alongside you. You want to be on their side if it went in the bar fight. It's also just a very good rugby team, very good rugby pack as well, with a, a lot of different facets to it. No, I enjoy that. That's excellent. Uh, right, we're going to move on to the uh, the fancy boys now. Scrum half, number nine. Not usually seen as the the hard men on the field, although I think Yusuf van der Westhausen was was uh, was pretty brutal. In fact, a lot of South African scrum halves are, are, are pretty tough. But uh, as far as I'm aware, I don't think we've ever had a South African scrum half. But we have had a couple of people who we think we can shoehorn into this category. There is There are two names for me that spring to mind about being tough as old boots. One that springs to mind as being a guy that starts the fight. Yeah, yeah I think that's pretty fair. Very cool. I always think nines of, like, you know, just the graphs of, like, of two disparities. 
I think nines are that. If one graph is really big of nines, are what nines think how they can fight, and the smaller one is how nines actually fight their actual mm. fighting ability. There is a huge mismatch between those two things. I, I think it was um, my return game after not playing for about three years last season when uh, I, I took a dislike to their scrum half. So I spent basically every ruck widening him up about his neck tattoo and he eventually lost it and threw two punches which me being terrible at fighting i just took straight to the face but luckily it was like being tickled with a feather duster uh and he got himself red carded for that uh so that was me on full wind-up mode because it was such a dreadful game it was raining so hard the ball wasn't coming out uh but that for me summarized a lot of what nines are about but i think there are a few exceptions i think these guys are then yeah so we've got um Austin Healy and Harry Ellis and Sam Harrison now, it, as yeah. our three choices. Yeah, we can see from those which one is the gobby one that starts the fight. Austin Healy, I remember against Saracens, I think he threw the ball at Richard Hill when Richard Hill was walking away, hit him on the back of the head, and then he ducked behind Jono laughing. So it, it it's not nails, but it is kind of like that spike. And he's so competitive at everything. You know, he, he'd be in there like a shot. And, you know, we joke about Austin, but he would never back down from anything either. So I think he is a legitimate shout. The other two, Sam Harrison, I think might be one of the toughest nines to have ever played for the club, um, bar none. Like, you know, he would play anyway, do anything for the club, put his body on the line. He was like an extra flanker. And actually the same could probably be said about Harry Ellis. Who I think to- Harry Ellis is... Is the favourite. Brave and stupid. Yeah, he seemed to sort of share a brain with Lewis Moody in some regard, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, I as as if we did the, the best nines of all time ones, I, I'm a big fan of Harry Ellis. But the thing with Harry was he was daft in a way of just how little self-regard he had for his own body. And, and Sam Harrison equally of the same mindset of, well, it's there, I want to get myself involved and to have all the consequences. Can you remember like if you were a, kicking 10 and you're in the pocket trying to make a clearance and on one side you had Moody coming at you and the other Harry Ellis I'd just be screaming box kick box kick straight away I just wouldn't want it because you know you're going to get wiped out they were absolutely insane at the charge they're willing to take a boot in the face every single time in fact I'm pretty sure they did get a few yeah the amount of times I think Harry played I think Harry's done interviews subsequently after retirement where he said he played far too many games with what would now be concussion and and just played because he wanted, didn't want to let people down. Um, in the day, these modern days of modern welfare would be well more looked after. But Harry, bless him, um, played in an era where it wasn't possible, and again, just wanted to play all the time. Um, did himself no favours along the way. He was so good. And it's, yeah, same as Sam Harrison. Really, it was almost like the the mindset of a Tigers forward, but the skill set of a back. Uh, both both quality players. Also, Healy, very very different but I still think worthy of consideration. Who's your vote going for? Harry. Oh, it's a close one for me. Yeah, I think I want to go for the the genuine, like, nails guy. It's either going to be Harry or Sam. I'm probably leaning very slightly towards Harry, but I wouldn't be upset if it was Sam. <laughs> I wouldn't even be that upset if it was Austin. Three good choices. What we're going to do is actually, because we're not sure if we missed anyone out, we'll put it out there, see if you've got anyone else to throw in for us. And then we'll put the vote out later this week. But the first of the soft boys, the backs, who's going to make it into the Nails 15? That's up to you. (laughs) 
Right, season starts now, Elliot. The big boys are back. It's at home. It's at about three o'clock, or is it the usual five past three nonsense? It's at Matteo Five past three, I think. <laughs> it's at Matteo Leewood's Welford Road. I think it's going to be a good crowd, but I think there are still tickets available. So please do get yourself down there. Obviously, it's not been the best start to the season. The boys need support. Players are coming back in under a new regime. They're going to need a lot of encouragement, so we need to be there and have our singing voices on. Elliot, Quinns have looked pretty handy. We did tip them for potentially good things this season. They've had some great sidings, Cunningham South, Joe Launchbury's a big one as well. Uh, and obviously they're going to have Marcus Smith, Danny Kerr uh, coming back, Joe Marler, uh, Marler and Smith, I believe, were on the bench against Newcastle and both came on. So you assume that they'll probably stock their team as well as they can, but you know it's a heck of a test, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. I think they've had a really good start. You know, three wins from the first four games. Um, they've done well in... in a, they've been less affected by um, the World Cup. Whilst the, the players they have had missing are key players for them, it's more the quantum of players that, that have been missing has been reduced. So they've done well out of that. Don Brandt hasn't been selected. Launchbury um, has come in. And so those those players have been available from the get-go and they're, they're top quality players. And Whilst I have misgivings over um, Don Brandt at international level, there is no doubts about his level at Premiership mm. um, at Premiership level. I, I, I still don't think the door is closed on Don Brandt. I think that he he may have a few attempts to come back, whether he eventually makes it or not. But his start to the season has been magnificent. You know, if you're a drops player, he's an example of what you'd want. He's running hard. His his handling, as always, is just fantastic, and the lines they run off him um, are superb. So. It's still the same old attacking Harlequins. Um, looking at their side, I think the big thing for them actually isn't necessarily new signings. It's on the wings. It, feel, it must feel like they've got two new signings, but it's two guys who were injured for most of last year. Tyrone Green, Lewis Liner. If you haven't seen it, check out Tyrone Green's finish of a Marcus Smith cross kick um, last week. Pretty special, wasn't it? Yeah, genuinely one of those where you just applaud because it's high skill high entertainment and just an all-round great thing. It's something that they should... Leicester, not Leicester. Everyone should be marketing that. Yeah. In, in, in Premier you should send that to America and say, look, you know, your wide receivers can do this. Our guys can do this. Yeah, it, it's it's top-level skill. So I think with, with Quinns is that every, all the focus always goes on their attack and how they play in their back line. But they've got a seriously underrated um, forward pack and it always goes into the radar a little we bit. We always say that, that, don't we, when we play Quinns? It's a common theme. Everyone thinks they're, like, soft. They're not. They're very, very solid. In the, the last game of the regular season last year, they actually stopped us up front. One of the reasons that when we spoke to the players afterwards, they said that they didn't, that Leicester didn't adapt to how Quinns disrupted their forward game in the first half. Then, obviously, Ashton got red carded, so it made it even harder. But they said in the second half, they found a way of actually dealing with what Quinns were wanting to throw at them and they started throwing the, you know, started throwing some shots of their own. And let's be honest, they mauled Quinns at the end off the park and should have had the winning try right at the end if it wasn't for a, a pretty crap refereeing decision. So we know that um, Quinns actually are a pretty tidy forward pack, you know, with, with Collier and Marler, they're a decent set of scrummagers. So traditionally, so you've got to be. That I respect their pack, and with launch Bree as well, dead line out issues from last season of of, of reduced. Um, so they've got that set. They've got the platforms uh, back in the set piece. I I still think they've got a couple of issues with their line out. 
I think that Walker, I think, is a very, he's almost like an extra flanker. Um, he, but his throwing again has, I think, has been a little bit hit and miss. Uh, Riley is a very young, very promising player who I thought looked wicked at under 20 level. I think that he could become an international hooker. But again, he's a little bit inconsistent. I don't think it's been bad this season, but you know, I think the fixture list has been relatively kind to them so far. So I think for them, this will also be um, a very significant test as well. And to see where their forward pack is. Now, talking of set piece, obviously, we, we've just spent a long time talking about how our line-out went to shit uh, against Saracens. Uh, I fully trust the boys to be able to re- rectify that because that's an area I would hope that we would look to target again, seeing how it went last season with the mall. Uh, how we got pretty creative with sort of shift drives, you know, kind of dummying left and then hooking right with how we looked to maul them. And we were super effective in that second half. The scrum, I think we didn't go anywhere. Cole and Marley usually cancel each other out, I think, that they, they both don't particularly like scrummaging against each other, probably because... Gentlemen's like, agreements, I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably it. I just assumed Marley was like picking Cole's nose and whispering sweet nothings in his ear. But it, that... That could be quite tight, but I was quite interested to see Newcastle's second string front row absolutely um, batter Quinn's, uh, well, I would say second string front row, but Marla was on at that point. So, you know, a scrummaging isn't just a front row, of course, it's as a unit. So there may be something to look at there, even if it's not straight off late on in the game. But you do feel for as much as we want to attack, we've got to give ourselves a platform by getting the upper hand on the set piece. Yeah, absolutely. I know it's, a bit simplistic just to say, oh, the big boys, the, you know, the England's boys are back and the internationals are back. And it's going to be an instant improvement. But, you know, we've seen it over the last couple of weeks. Cronin's come back. Our scrummaging looks a bit stronger. Rafael's come back. We're more of a threat on the floor. Cather comes into the side. We're getting over the game line in the back. So our better players are delivering in the aspects of what we've, of what they're there to do. So you look at the likes of Montoya, Chesham, Visa, um, Coley, you know, Lenny and Pollard, you know, there's five, six off the bat that could come straight in. You know, they're all going to add to the team and, and add, you know, a, their skill set and what they're good at, their super strengths back in. And I think it's easy to forget at times that actually these aren't just run of the mill internationals. They're not two bit internationals that have sat on, you know, that have done nothing in the World Cup and at teams that haven't gone anywhere. These are internationals that have gone to the final four, you know. We've got two World Cup winners coming back. We've got a host of England players who are major players for England. You know, Ollie Chester was one of the best forwards for um, for England. Dan Cole had an unbelievable semi-final. We had a good tournament overall. You know, we know what Jasper's like. We know what Polly's one of, one of the best tens in the league, if not Europe, if not the world. Montoya, unbelievable leadership and one of the best hookers in the world. So these aren't just, you know, and we're not even talking about Freddie Stewart yet, who's one of the best fullbacks in the world. So these aren't just run-of-the-mill internationals coming back. These are genuine, bona fide, top-level, world-class players that add something, add leadership, and they add top-end talent into this lineup. And when we look, when me and you were swapping text messages yesterday about what our team would be for Quinns, you compare it to the side that played against Saris, and it's an unbelievable... It's a different beast. It's a different beast with all due respect to everyone who has put in a heck of a shift while these boys have been away. you know, the nature of sport is that you have guys who operate on a different level to others. And these, like you say, I thought you really good point. These aren't bit part players. In fact, the, the most bit part players we've probably got who are internationals are probably Tommy and Kata, 
who are back. And that's not because they're no good. Tommy got man of the match basically every game he he got when Jack Morgan was injured. It just so happens that he Tommy was the second best player for Wales behind the, the first best player for Wales. Who's captain? Uh, yeah, who's captain now. Uh, uh, by the way, just quick, completely quick aside, I thought he was fantastic as well, Jack Morgan. A heck of a talent. Um, Kata was was a real sort of shining light, I thought, for Tonga as they got going. Uh, it, he, he actually looked good from the start for them. They, you know, he was playing on the wing for Tonga. And I think, you know, there are going to be some defensive issues there. I quite like the idea of locking him into that 12 channel where his thought process is to, you know, to just hit. But it's the England, South African and Argentinian boys coming back that I think is really important. Julian, it's not just like you say what he offers in terms of his gameplay, but, you know, the, the eth, you know, the presence he has to lift players around him. That's why he kind of stepped up to captaincy last year. And the others you've talked about as well, but Chesham is, has got a massive role to play. I do wish George Martin was fit because I feel that that's the sort of presence more than Ches, who is a, a wider ranging sort of second row, isn't he? He's a bit more similar to Cam Henderson in my book. Uh, in terms of that, he is he's very effective in the wider channels. He's super athletic. He is very, very physical. But, you know, George Martin in that close contact, we've seen how devastating he can be at the highest level now. And we've known that for a while, but to see him step up and now he's got a taste for it. I'm so, so excited to see him back in a Tiger shirt to see uh, if he can be as dominant now at club level, because I think that's the next step for him to be consistently dominant. That said, you know, these guys have all been playing at a high, high level. They've been conditioned to the cows come home. I'm hoping that we will see a, a big uptick in performance. Note of caution, though, of course, because it's easy to compare to Saracens. The Saris boys, who in a similar vein are all key players for England, have come back into an environment that they know that they've been playing in for years and years and years under the same director of rugby. I'm sure they will have a progression on their game plan this year, but it will be very broadly the same. And as much as McKellar said, look, I'm not ripping up the book, I'm trying to change a few things, uh, you know, just tweak a few things, they're still coming into a brand new environment. So I think we also have to be realistic in expecting it not to be quite as seamless as it was for the Saris boys coming back, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's all fair. I think that's fair. It is interesting, obviously, that Tigers are doing a promo now for getting tickets for next week. Jasper Visa is on the on the promo. So um, that possibly reveals where, I don't know how linked in these things are to, to the team elections, but you've got to imagine that en masse, these boys are going to be in the 23 of, of some description. Uh, looking at the game plan, and obviously we know where Quinns can attack, uh, particularly if Marcus Smith is playing, who I am a massive fan of. I know he's a bit marmite for some players. I think he's a magnificent player. And I love the passion he brings as well and the energy he has. Um, I'm not sure what the deal is with Esterhausen. If Esterhausen is back, that is a very, very dangerous combination, as we well know, uh, if you've got that 10-12 combo back. But... You know, they are still a side that they can strike you from anywhere, but they are still a side you can potentially get on top of and force them back. So for me, it is all about a really, really aggressive and organised defence uh, on Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Tommy would be crucial into that in terms of slowing the ball down because you can't let Quinns have quick ball because we know that they can attack from anywhere. I think our kicking's got to be disciplined. That's why I think Pollard coming back in would be crucial because in terms of the kicking exchanges, there's an argument about whether you put Shilcock at 15 um, alongside that in terms of the kicking battle. Uh, but you've got to kick well. You've got to be physical in 
defence. You've got to be physical and quick off the line, like you said, in defence. And you've got to be on the floor. Um, you've got to be competitive and slow the ball well, down. Well, Julian's to, huge to, at that as well. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's multi-pronged in, upon that. So I think you've, you've just, I think if you look at when we've had success against Quinns, and I look at the away game last year, we did them up front. We got the physicality right and we took the game to Quinns and we just, it was almost old school Leicester. It was almost a performance at a time when we were, it was a week after that Saris game. So we were, we were finding our feet at the start of last year, last year. And we went to Quinns and we went old school Leicester, did the physicality up front, physically in defence and really just squeezed and pressurised Quinns into the areas and it allowed us to play in the areas of the field we wanted to and it allowed us to get the rolling ball going. We scored a couple of tries off the back of that. So I think using that I think you've got to be using that as your sort of blueprint of how to get success against them in terms of go back to what our super strengths are don't shy away from them and and get your basics right up front do your basics in defense go to what old school less is about and really put the squeeze on and it'll be interesting with obviously the, the, the players coming back in and the forward if we can get the nudge up front which is what they'll be aiming for if it gives you again it comes back to the conversation we had earlier if you can get a better platform for Lenny and Polly to, to to play with, you know, Polly's able, you look at the devastation, the, the talent we've got out wide. If we can give Polly something to work with, I think we've got the tools to be able to do some damage. Let's just quickly go through our starting lineup there, because I think the last few weeks we've said, oh, you know, pretty much the same couple of changes here or there. I think we're going to see a fair amount of changes for this game. And I, I expect there to be start with the front row. I think Julian comes straight back in. Uh, you know, provided his knee is okay, but we all panic when we see him with ice on his knee. But I think his knee's borderline fucked anyway. But as long as he's fit, for me, he plays uh, and he captains the side. I think across the board, if they're fit, they play. I think yeah. it's going to sound harsh, but it's not meant to be. But McKellar, with the starts he's had, has almost lost the right to be funky with his team selections. If we'd have won three out of the four, then you can make an argument of actually we can we can be a bit cuter in certain positions. I think given the start and given the, the importance of getting a win, there is no excuses. You've got to throw them all in. So if they're fit and they're mentally good to go and they're available, they play. So yeah, I would go um, Cronin, Montoya, Cole in the front row. That's obviously assuming Hazy might be out or maybe sort of like on a lighter training load. I also think, you know, he's played a lot of rugby. If he's carrying a nickel, then, you know, we'll either rest him or you have him on the bench. I also think he's much better coming off the bench than Cole is as much as that will annoy Hazy, um, because he'll be like, oh, I want to start, which I understand. Uh, second row, I think this is interesting. I was really impressed with Wells. Uh, provided that one of them is confident enough to call the line out, I'd go Wells and Chesham. I like the physicality that Wells brought off the bench. I would also, I would go different to you. I'd have Henderson and Chesham. Okay. Well, I'd be very happy with that as well. Um, I think then the back row picks itself. Hanro... Tommy, Jasper, that's the premiership winning back row, of course. Nice consistency to that lovely balance. Back line, you go Lenny, you go Polly. Those guys know each other now. Polly obviously spent a lot of pre-season with us, so hopefully he can uh, slot straight in, uh, which is such a key position as well for us. And, and that is no slight on Shelley, by the way, who I thought, you know, he he's done a phenomenal job there, considering he is not an out-and-out 10 as well. I think he's been absolutely magnificent, but obviously you've got the World Cup winner coming back. So Pollard comes back in centres. Now, this is interesting because there's a lot of clamour, obviously, for Catter to start. <laughs> I I am very tempted, but I would stick with Kelly and Porter because they haven't had a run 
with, you know, a, a decent platform yet. And I do like the idea of Kata coming off the bench with 25 to go. I also like the idea of Kata, the chaos theory of 20 minutes to go with, against tired legs, go and tackle him. You know, a pumped up 18 stone Tongan that wants to do some damage. As we saw against Sarri, that is the, the difference that he brought against tired legs. He was getting over the game line consistently and doing that, doing some damage. So for me, I think with Polly back, a Polly Kelly Porter midfield is where I would go. There was no argument to put Catterite wide, but I wouldn't. I'd have him uh, in the 23 shirt reprised in the role he did at the weekend. Yeah, completely agree. I think if he is going to come in, he'll probably come in, it will say 12, I think, on his shirt with Kelly at 13. Because I think you still want that second pair of hands which Kelly can offer uh, and provide support for Polly in that regard. But I think that we would still see effectively him attacking, basically playing as a 13 in attack. So, um, yeah, that'll be interesting to keep an eye on. Back three, again, for me, I think it beats itself that you go Oli Hassel-Collins, Josh Bassett on the other wing and uh, Freddie back at fullback. I would probably do that. There is an argument that Shilly goes at 15. Um, considering how well he's played and Freddie has played a lot of he only had one game out you know um, he pretty much played all the warm-up games and played all bar one of the World Cup campaign so there is a lot of minutes there so there is an argument to put Shilly at 15 or Brown at 15 and have Ollie Hassel-Collins and um, Bassett out wide there is also an argument to say Brown at 15 and Stewart at 14 with Ollie Hassel-Collins at 11 but I'd probably lean to the the traditional back three of Hassel Collins, Stewart and Bassett. Yeah. On a correction, Stewart actually missed two games because I think he got dropped for the quarterfinal, didn't he, against Fiji? As well. Oh, okay. And, I and, thought he meant... and he didn't play against Chile. Ah, fair enough. I've, I forgot he was playing against Nors Chile. Nors alert. Nors alert. Oh, you... <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, um, yeah, but for me, I think you want to get Freddie. I think he is growing into being a leader for the side as well. I think he's passionate about Tigers. I think you want to bring him back as soon as possible. You know, I do get the idea of having him on the wing, but I, I think Chile's earned the right to have that 22 shirt so you can perhaps adjust later on if needs be. Uh, but you, we forget Freddie's got a fantastic kicking game as well and a big boot on him. Um, not too dissimilar to Shilcock. Obviously, he offers a left-footed option, which is quite nice as well. So there'll be a lot to think about. I think on the bench, probably going to go for... Ooh, I'm going to go for Nick Dolly on the bench. I've well, I, I, I... I think there's not a lot of difference between um, Claire and Dolly. So happy with either. Uh, then for me, it would be Whitcomb and if he's fit, Hazy, if not Heard. Yep. Uh, second row, again, would be either Henderson or Wells, depending who makes it into the starting lineup. Back row is yep. interesting. Oh, there was a lot of chat about Ileone not playing. I do understand why he doesn't, though, because at the moment, at senior level, he only sort of covers seven. So perhaps, again, Rogerson, perhaps. Uh, unless Haverall's fit. If Haverall's fit, I wouldn't be surprised if Haverall, Haverall makes it into the bench slot. But again, there's there's not a lot of difference between Emeka, Rogerson and Haverall in terms of they bring different... There's not a lot of difference in their talents. They're, they all bring a lot to it. I wouldn't be surprised if Rogerson gets it because I think he's just a tad more versatile than mm. um, the other two. Yeah, but Haverall, I think, probably has bigger impact. Ileone, I, I think, is the biggest talent but he, at the moment he's only covering seven. So that probably sways it against him. Um, Whiteley on the bench for nine. Shilcock in the 22 shirt and Catter at 23 for me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. What's your prediction? 
I think season starts now. Season starts now. It does. It does actually, and Big it is pressure. important to have that. It is. It is. I think. Hope. It's worth remembering. We've only had one home game out of four so far. Um, that has counted against us. I think being at home, having people back, getting in amongst it. I think total edge up front, and that will correspond away to a Tigers win. Polly being at ten. I think 100% kicking record at the World Cup. So if they want kicking penalties, Polly can be that difference. His tactical kicking as well can pin um, Quinn's back. Tigers by six. Yeah, I think, I'm hoping we're going to edge it because like you say, the next two games, if we win the next two games, almost those losses for me are almost forgotten. If we lose the next two games, then we've got to start asking some questions. So it's a lot of pressure, but I think these boys are used to pressure. So, I'm going to say Tigers by eight. Right, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you very, very much for listening, everybody. Hope to see you at Welford Road uh, on Saturday. You may have seen on Twitter that I was sort of on the hunt for a ticket, and I just want to do a very, very quick thank you uh, because I was able to get one a terrace ticket uh, in exchange for a donation to the Matt Hampson Fund. So uh massive thank you for Katie JS uh, on Twitter, who has very kindly exchanged her ticket. I will shout extra loud for the both of, it, both of us, Katie. Thank you very much. Elliot, you'll be going. We'll probably be near each other, unfortunately. We'll be in the ABC bar before the game. Yeah, we'll, we'll try, and be, try and meet up for a beer. Definitely. Right, uh, if you want to see us, we'll be in the ABC. We'll let you know where we are. Please come by and say hello. Uh, have a beer with us. Uh, Otherwise, stay safe, everyone, and hope to see you on Saturday. 